And I'd love for you to open your Bibles uh, as I'm just talking here. Um, Open them to the book of Matthew. But a couple of weeks ago, we talked about anxiety um, in, in one sense of the word. Because in reality, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, anxiety is something that is at such, such, so much the forefront of our culture and our culture's conversation right now. Tons of kids are super medicated. Adults are super medicated. We're trying to get ourselves past that place of constant anxiety. We feed the anxiety by our dependence on, um, on being in, in, in contact at all times. Our relationships are shallow, but they're wide, so we have lots of people that we have to respond to right away. Um, my most restful times are when I'm in a place where my phone couldn't work if I wanted it to, um, because then I feel no guilt. I got to tell you, I shouldn't feel guilt for not answering my phone when God's speaking or when I'm spending time with my family, but I do. I shouldn't. It's not right. It's not what God wants for me. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you need to be on call all the time. But we do, right? You know, there is nothing wrong with waiting an hour, two hours to respond to someone's text message. Unless it says SOS, I need you now, it can wait. And you know, if you're on the other end of that text message, give somebody a break. Just because they didn't respond right away does not mean they don't love you. Doesn't mean they hate you. Just means that they're, they're trying to find a rhythm. And uh, the, the, the voice you respond to all the time, that's the voice of your master. So if you let your conversation or your listening to God be interrupted by someone else's voice all the time, they're your master, not God, right? If I'm talking with my boss and someone comes in and starts talking to me and I cut off the conversation with my boss and I start talking to them, I've just shown my boss who my real boss is, right? So there are times to just turn your phone off. But all of this has just led to a constant state of alert, which scientists have, have done some studies on neuroplasticity. That means your, your brain's ability to adapt. I don't know if you know this, you probably do, but your brain is not the same as it was 10 years ago. It's not the same as it was one year ago. It's, it's changing, it's alive. And your brain has the ability to adapt to the lifestyle you're living. It has the ability to form new neural pathways. And once you do something over and over again, it, it, it makes a new bridge. There are certain parts of your brain that are for new information. There are certain parts of your brain that are for things you do all the time. And so when you meditate God's word and you're speaking it to yourself all the time, not only is it getting in your spirit, but it's actually going to different parts of your brain, which is really cool. Your brain can adapt, and that's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. Because as you know, when you are feeding yourself good information and you adapt to good information, that's a good change. But if you are putting yourself in a bad environment with bad information, then adapting to that would be a bad thing, right? That's not, that's not a good situation. Your brain will adapt, and our brains have adapted. If you've ever noticed, probably you yourself don't have the same attention span you once had. And you might think it's because you're getting old. I think it's because we constantly have screens all the time. So I'm, I'm a really good multitasker now. I wasn't always a good multitasker. I'm pretty good at it now. What I have trouble with now that I never had trouble with when I was younger was keeping my mind on one thing. Do you know when I watch a movie, and we don't watch a lot of movies, but when I watch a movie or a show, I always put the closed captioning on because I want to read at the same time I'm watching. I can hear just fine, but I put the closed captioning on. And at the same time, I have something on my laptop and have something on my phone, and I'm doing three things at once. Now, that can't really be healthy, right? But we do it to ourselves. So one study said that we're in such a constant state of alert, whenever our phone goes off, what do we do? We reach for it. I'm wearing a watch right now that vibrates if I get a text message. And I have to turn it on when I'm preaching. I turn it off when I'm preaching, because I don't want to be like, who's texting me right now? One time I got an email from somebody that was in the congregation while I was preaching, and it came up on my iPad. <laughs> oh, did I talk to them after. <laughs> that was great. Busted, right? 
I normally have this in airplane mode, and an email popped up, and I look, I'm looking at right at them. And... <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, I got to turn this off. I got to put it in theater mode or whatever. But do you realize how, how weird that is, that we are constantly alerted if somebody's trying to get a hold of us? You know, back in the day of a Greek messenger running to find you, they took them some time to get there and some time to go back. You know what I mean? You weren't constantly getting messengers every two minutes run up to you. Happy face, winky face. <laughs> Cat gif. Um, you know, L LOL. <laughs> and then go back. It wasn't happening. So you had time to process stuff. You know, Paul's not like writing a letter and immediately getting one back. But what they've discovered is that our constant state of alert, um, before this age of technology, the only, one of the only jobs that you'd have that same level of constant alert uh, was air traffic control. They were always had to be on while they were working. But even an air traffic controller gets time off. It was a super high stressful job. But now we're all applying that stress to ourselves. So there's, that adds to our anxiety. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of outside pressure. There's all these things. And I want you to know that, uh, as, as we've said before, for every mile of road, there are two miles of ditch, right? You, for every mile of road, there's a couple miles of ditch that, that can get you off and you get on the wrong way. The way we think about anxiety is, is either we think about it like the scripture talks about it, or... On one hand, maybe you think that anybody who's ever struggling with this is just spiritually weak or mentally weak. And you treat them like that anytime they come to you and say, look, I'm struggling with anxiety, I'm struggling with stress, and you just treat them like they're lesser. Well, that's a really, that's a really crummy way to treat somebody, and it's not reflecting the reality of what's going on. If someone comes up to you and says, can you pray with me right now? I, I, I mean, I've had headaches every morning. I've woke up with headaches. You don't say, well, what's wrong with you? What have you done wrong? How did you tick God off? No, I mean, you, you pray for them. You, you love them. You, you know, you, you don't treat them like there's something wrong with them because they're, they're being attacked. On the other side, now here's the new thing. The other side, we kind of fetishize this thing. We turn it into something like, this is, my, this is something cool about me. Is I, I, this is my version of anxiety. It's almost like, you know, and I hear that term a lot, my anxiety, my anxiety, my anxiety. What we've done is we've turned it into our own. We've wore it like a, a brand. And, and, and now, I mean, if you're, if you're following, you know, the... YouTube, if you're following a lot of, you know, some of the stuff that's, that's, that's not just, not really for our age anymore, it's, it's more for, for folks Hunter's age, they talk about their anxiety all the time, but it's not in a sense of I'm ever going to overcome this, it's like how am I coping? And I understand that because they don't know Jesus. But I want to talk, let's, let's find God's road, which is, it's not it's, it's, it's not a shame. You should never be shame, guilt, or stigma attached to this. And at the same time, you shouldn't turn it into a badge of honor. Let's, let's understand that there's a difference between um, being faithless and your faith being under attack. Do you know what I'm saying? So you have to understand that, that really, and we're going to talk about it a little today, that sometimes the root of our anxiety is our own unbelief. And even when I say that, there's a guilt of, oh, no, my unbelief. Oh, shoot. I should have been believing. I Where's my faith? My faith is too small. Listen, that's not going to build your faith at all. It's not going to help you. In fact, that's the cycle that the enemy uses, the guilt cycle, the shame cycle. Keeps you in that cycle of being guilty for feeling guilty, shame for being ashamed, and you'll never get out of it until you say, this is who I am in Christ. And there's no shame. The lepers didn't come and say, ooh, I, just, uh, I hope he doesn't have to touch us. No, they just came and knew he was the healer. Jesus is the healer. And he's not going to, you know, I love the scripture in James where he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives freely without reproach. Which means if you're stupid, good. Ask him for wisdom. And he's not going to say, you need wisdom, you idiot. 
There's no reproach attached to it. Listen, I lack wisdom. So I have to ask the Lord for wisdom. And he doesn't put you down for asking. So you're never going to hear from me, what's wrong with you? Why are you struggling? That's not the issue for me. And that shouldn't be the issue for any of us. We're not going to make you feel guilty for what you're going through. We're going to help you, bring you to the healer. And you're going to help me and I'm going to help you. This is how we do it. It's the body of Christ, right? If anyone says they don't have anything to overcome, I don't know if you're pushing hard enough. Right? So anyways, if there's a root of unbelief to our anxiety, because really, what is fear? A lot of our anxiety comes from fear. What is fear? Fear is the same as faith. It's just faith in the wrong thing. Right? So the Israelites who go to the promised land say we can't go in. They've got a lot of faith. It's just faith in those giants. Those giants are too big. They got faith in the fortresses. Those fortresses are too big for us. What they're lacking is a bigger faith in God. And so here's what I'm saying today, and we're going to talk a little about it. We're going to talk a bit about how it relates to you and your job and your finances. But this idea of, of unbelief leading to anxiety, but we could say it another way, not necessarily that unbelief is leading to anxiety, although it is. Let's look at it the other way. If unbelief can lead to anxiety, then faith can be a way out. Faith is your way to battle it, all right? And like I said, if you are saying, I don't have enough faith, I just, oh, where's my faith? My faith is small. Listen, we all, we all have dealt with that. There's no shame in that. There's a difference in being faithless and saying, I don't believe, and your faith being under attack. Do you know what I'm saying? The disciples were honest enough to say, Lord, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. You know, it, it sounds weird that they said that, but that's probably a good thing to ask. God, I realize, because I've, I've grown up in a family that talked about faith a lot, and I watched them walk it out. They were people of faith. But you know, sometimes I heard that message, and I twisted it a little in my own head, and I began to put faith in my faith rather than faith in God. You're putting faith in the process you're going through. What you've done is you've taken a, taken a work of grace that works by the Spirit, and you've turned it into a work of the flesh, right? You can't do that. We're set free from, those, from getting it done by our own work. The work of faith is a lot different than the work of the flesh. Let's get into this in Matthew chapter 6. So Matthew 6 is famous for talking about anxiety, talking about worry. And sometimes we, you know, sometimes we as preachers try to be cute and avoid the uh, scriptures that everybody goes to. You know, we want to be like the one that digs out this really obscure verse. <laughs> I'm going to admit it. I'm just going to be honest with you. That's what we do sometimes. We're like, everybody reads that verse. You know, but sometimes there's a reason that we go to that verse when we talk about this. And that's because it really is important. So if you're too cool to read John 3.16, go home. Because <laughs> it's pretty big. It's big for a reason. All right? Don't literally go home. Stay. <laughs> Matthew 6.25 says, For this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you eat or what you will drink. Now, Jesus says, don't be worried. Don't be worried. I've said this before, but why do we put that on a different level than, like, don't kill people? Right? If it's a command of God, it's a command of God. This Jesus is not like, I wish you weren't worried. He says, don't be worried. Now, if you're sitting there going, oh, my goodness, I'm a murderer. <laughs> come to the altar. Where we'll be fine. We come to the healer, all right? But he says, do not be worried. He's not giving you an option. He's telling you. He's commanding us. Don't be worried. But I want you to know every time that Jesus commands, he gives the power to do it. So you should rejoice when you're commanded. Rejoice when God gives you a command because every time you get a command, you're getting the power and the equipment to do it. He would never command you to do something you had to do on your own. Don't be worried about your life. Well, see, there's really nothing that doesn't fall in that category, right? If he were just like, don't be worried about 
this or that, then we could say, well, can't be worried about that, but we can be worried about this. But he says, don't be worried about your life. Then he gives you some specifics, but these aren't the only things. He says, as to what you will eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, there's a reason he's talking about elemental stuff. Jesus is not telling you it's cool if you walk around naked. He's not telling you you could probably live without food. He's not saying that. He's, in fact, saying the opposite. You need these things, but don't you worry about them. Now, if he can say that about stuff that you absolutely need, don't you think it applies to stuff you don't really need? Do you know what I'm saying? If he's saying don't worry about stuff that you absolutely need, then I'd say don't worry about anything. He says, isn't life more than that? And you might say, life might be more than that, but I still need that stuff. He says, look at the birds of the air. Now, how many of you read this verse and actually do that? Leah does. Right before you shoot them? <laughs> Boy, that bird was pretty. It'll look good on my wall. <laughs> Famous hunting family over here. Now, you look at, okay, we read these things that Jesus tells us to do, but we, we sometimes just don't do them. But he says, look at it. So you're inside, so don't look out the window. Just imagine a bird. Look at the bird of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? I know that's a controversial idea today, but you're worth more than birds. You're worth more than whales. We should take care of these animals, but you're worth more. Verse 27. Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Now, here's the lie. Here's the lie you'll tell yourself, and here's the lie other people will tell you, even if they don't use words to tell you. If you're not worried, you don't care. Like, if you're not worried, you don't care enough. You're, you're, you know, you're not. No, you're, you're recognizing, I, I can't carry this care. My lack of worry is not my lack of love. My lack of worry is not my lack of of concern in some area. My lack of worry is that I trust a bigger God. I, I, I put, I'm, putting, I'm choosing to put more emphasis on a big God than a big problem. You'll feel, let me tell you right now, there is a voice that will try to make you feel guilty for not worrying about your kids. Like you don't love them enough. But you've got to love them enough to give them to Jesus. That's the only way. You're, is your worry going to help them? Are they going to be out there and just like, ooh, I feel my mom's worry. It's, it's the wind beneath my wings. No, it's not. <laughs> that was bad enough before there were cell phones. Then you're getting a text. Are you okay? Where are you? I'm just, I'm at the same place I was five minutes ago. <laughs> my mom doesn't do that. But. <laughs> Verse 28. And why are you worried about clothing? Well, because I need it. He says, observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace. What's his point for a minute there? Those things are temporary. You're eternal. God always puts more value on eternal things than temporary things. Grass is temporary. You're not. Your flesh is like grass. It'll go away. You aren't. You are worth much more. It's tomorrow's thrown into the furnace. Will he not much more clothe you? Much more, much more. Many much more, like lots much more. You of little faith. Oh, wait, why does Jesus do this? Why can't he just take a teaching moment and let us all feel good about it? Why does he have to, in the middle of it, go, you of little faith? And, and nobody wants to make eye contact when he says that. Everyone wants to pretend he's not talking to them. But he says, you of little faith. Have you ever considered, we talked a couple weeks ago, that pride leads to anxiety, but humility is a way out. What we're going to talk a little bit about today for the, little, for the rest of the time we have that unbelief leads to anxiety, but faith is the way out. Now, there are, like we said, we talked a couple weeks ago, it was pride. Pride and unbelief, they play in the same pool, right? One leads to the other. 
So it wouldn't be hard to preach a sermon today telling you that your pride comes from your unbelief. I get that. Or your unbelief comes from your pride. These things, all, all, these, all darkness works together in a chaotic way. All light works together in a unified way. So all of these things will lead to anxiety. And all of the things that God gives us will lead you out. But he says here, so if you're worried, his response is, you have little faith. I don't want that. I don't like that. I don't want Jesus blaming me. I want to call it a sickness and be done with it. I want to call it an illness and take a pill for it. Now, I'm not condemning anyone who's taking a pill. I'm telling you that you can't go the rest of your life. If you want to be free, you have to know that Jesus is the healer of mental illness as much as he's the healer of physical illness. And there's no shame attached to mental illness, even as there's no shame attached to physical illness. We don't make people come up and pray for them and make them feel guilty for having a problem with their leg. So I'm not going to make you feel guilty for having a problem with your mind. But I'm going to believe for your healing. I'm going to stand with you. And you know what? I'm going to stand with you as long as it takes to stand with you. And we need to do that for one another. There is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. We can't attach condemnation to a struggle. Struggle is an opportunity for victory. It's an opportunity to overcome. And it's an opportunity to overcome together. So here he says, you of little faith. So he's calling out, here's the real root of your anxiety. He says, don't worry then, saying, don't worry, don't worry, saying. And we could get into that. I know there's been some great messages in the King James that says, take no care, saying. A lot of times, the way we solidify our anxiety and our worry is through what we say. It goes to the next level of power when we give it words. We start saying, What'll I wear? What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So God is not saying, don't worry about it. You don't really need it. He says, you do need it. But I don't want you to worry because I'm your heavenly Father. You're still living like an orphan. You've got to remember, you've got a Father who takes care of you. And I've used this example over and over, but being a father has taught me a lot about my father. And he's a lot better, my heavenly father is a lot better than me at being a father. But even me, as, a, as an earthly father, I don't want my child every day coming to me saying, Daddy, are we going to get to eat today? I don't want him coming to me saying, Daddy, should I, should I make myself some clothes? Should I go ask somebody at school if they can give me some? Because I don't want to bother you. I don't want my kid saying that. I want my kid to have no concern about it. I want him to just automatically believe. And you know what he does? He's six years old. He doesn't lie awake at night going, am I going to eat tomorrow? He doesn't lie awake at night going, am I going to have something to wear? He just knows that's taken care of. And I've known parents that, that at times they skipped meals so that their kids could eat. And they didn't tell their kids because they didn't want their kids to worry about it. That's really love. But your father doesn't have to skip a meal. Your father doesn't eat, but even if he did, he wouldn't have to skip a meal because he owns everything. He'll take care of you. He says, the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Now listen, if you're seeking something, that's not just what you're thinking about. You're spending your life on it. Now it sounds like, well, isn't that quaint? They're, they're eagerly seeking food and clothes. We're so much more sophisticated in 2018. Yeah, we're still eagerly seeking things to try to make us happy. And we're failing at it. And it's causing us more stress and anxiety. Right? There's that song, I think it's 21 Pilots, that says, you know, wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mamas sang us to sleep, but now we're all stressed out. <laughs> it's just the reality. Now we're stressed out. I wish I could just go back and mom just sang to me, but now I'm just stressed out. Well, that's the reality that a lot of people are living in, and there's got to be a way out. There's got to be help. He says this, your father knows. Your father knows. If you believe your father knows, your father knows. Now listen, if your father knows, then the second question is, yeah, but does my father care? And religion will tell you that your father doesn't always care, but Jesus tells us your father always cares. We, we read about it two weeks ago. He says, casting your cares upon him, for he 
cares for you. That's why you cast your cares, because he's not going to throw it in the sea of forgetfulness. He's going to deal with it because he cares for you. Your father knows and your father cares. If you could know those two things, it would solve a lot of issues in your life. Dad knows and dad cares. Verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I want you to know that Jesus is not just telling you to stop worrying. He tells you what to think about. Right? You can't tell somebody, stop doing this without giving them something else. Have you ever been depressed and someone just says, be happy? How well does that work? Stop being sad. Stop being sad. Stop being sad. Oh, thank you. You fixed me. <laughs> wow. What power. No, it, it doesn't. But what Jesus does is he doesn't say, take your, he doesn't just say, stop looking at this. He gives you something to look at. He says, you know what you need to think about? He says, look at the birds for a minute. Okay. Well, it's, it's pretty hard to be worrying about clothes when you're looking at birds. Okay, I'm looking at birds. What about the birds? Well, look how I, look how I feed them. Look how they, they're taken care of. Oh, okay. Now look at the flowers. Oh, okay. And then he says this. He, he says, you need to stop. You need to break the cycle of seeking things and, and, and seeking your own welfare. You need to break that cycle because it's killing you. You're not adding a single hour to your life. In fact, you're taking hours away. Stop seeking that. But he doesn't just say stop seeking that. He gives you something to seek. Nobody should be sitting at home wondering, oh, I'm just going to try not to think about this. I'm going to try not to think about this. You'll go insane. You can't do it. You've got to turn your mind, set your mind on things above. You've got to know what to put your head on. So he, said, he doesn't just say stop seeking those things. He says seek First, his kingdom and his righteousness. Let me ask you something. If you're seeking money, if you're seeking clothes, if you're seeking food, does that mean you're just at home thinking about these things? No, if you're seeking, you're getting out there, you're hustling. Right? You're, you're trying to get it. Well, wouldn't it be the same if you're seeking his kingdom? See, we, we think seeking money and seeking food and seeking all that means we're out there, we're working hard, we're hustling for all those things. We're, we're, we're getting the job that we want. We're doing this, we're doing that. Well, if we apply that to seeking those things, why wouldn't we say seeking the kingdom is a lot more than just sitting at home thinking about the kingdom? It's walking out the kingdom in your daily life. It's walking out his righteousness in your daily life. It's that received righteousness from God. It's walking it out. If you're seeking it, your, your life is direct. You're pointed in that direction. Everything I do is for the kingdom. Everything I do is for his righteousness. Now, what freedom that everything you do doesn't have to be for money anymore. Isn't that freedom? The job you take doesn't have to be the job just because if I don't take this job, I don't know how we'll survive. God never called you to make decisions based on money. You should have, you should work. God called us to work with our hands, right? But he doesn't say you have to take this job or that job. He'll tell you what job to take. But if you'll make a decision on where you're going to live, what job you'll take, if you'll make that decision based on kingdom things, his blessing is on it. And you might take a job with less salary and you'll be more blessed. Right? Listen, we, we, bought, we sometimes have twisted the gospel into saying, well, you know, if he wants to bless me, then that means I have to take the job that offers the most money. Or all promotion comes from God, so if I'm offered a promotion, I have to take it. You don't have to take a promotion. Maybe God's giving you a promotion. Maybe he's not. Listen, if, if, all, if you had to receive every promotion, do you know all that the devil would have to do to get you to get off your path was, was to throw you a bit of cash? If you're that easy to trick, then Elmer Fudd or Wiley e. Coyote, all of those guys would catch you real quick. They just put some dollar bills over a hole with a net, an Acme anvil would fall on your head. <laughs> God may give you a promotion, but it's going to be from him. Yeah. Amen? So what you're going to have to do is say, Lord, is this from you? Is this the path you want me to take? Oh, it offers more money, but it takes me away from my family. It takes me away from my church. It causes me to work day and night. And, and I'm saying I'm doing this for them, but they never see me. Maybe that's not God. God has multiple ways to bless you. He doesn't have to work the same way the world does. Now, maybe God does have a promotion for you. Doubles your paycheck. That could be cool, too. But you know how you're going to know? You're not going to know by the numbers on the check. You're going to know from the voice of God. 
He may tell you to quit your job that made a lot of money and take one that makes barely any, and you'll find out how he provides. We trust God, right? We have a master. We have a father. He says in verse 34, so don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. And everybody says, no, that's not true. You ever look at your Bible and are just honest for a minute and say, I don't believe that. No, none of you. I've at times, listen, there's no shame in saying that as long as you make up your mind to believe it. I've plenty of times I've looked at my Bible and go, I don't believe that. I want to believe that. I don't believe that. You know how many times it took me looking at this verse, praying about this verse before I actually believed it? I wish I could say the first time I believed it. But I, every practical bit of knowledge that the world gives you says, that's not true. Tomorrow will not take care of itself. Get on it. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus sounds like such a hippie right now. <laughs> he says, don't worry about it. Tomorrow will take care of itself, man. Each day has enough trouble of his own. If your teenager says that, you smack him in the head and you say, no, that's wrong. Sit down, I'm going to tell you about life. But you can't do that to Jesus because he's Jesus. What in the world do you say? Each day has enough trouble of his own? What kind of weird philosophy is this? Well, he's telling you, he's, he's, he's rewiring you. It is a really good thing when you bang your head against the Bible. Not literally, but you bang it up and you come against that wall and you have to choose some foundational beliefs. You have to change what you believe. And he's using this language, not because it's easy to accept, but because it is hard. And when you come up against it and go, that can't possibly be true, he's saying, good, I'm glad you're finally honest. Now let's work on what's causing you to believe that, what's causing you to, to, to not believe that, I'm your, that you've got a father and he's going to take care of you. Because if you'll really believe, when it says tomorrow will take care of itself, he's not just talking about fate or luck. He's talking about your father. Right? We are not fatalists. Amen. We're not fatalists. I don't believe in, you know, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, sometimes you're the reason. <laughs> right? You, you go back in the lobby and you punch somebody. Everything happens for a reason, man. The reason <laughs> was you. So I'm not one of those people that just says it'll work out because it'll work out. No, I, I'm going to have to be one of those people that says, I trust my father. I'm not going to worry. And you know what? I also obey my father. So he's not just going to tell you to lie in bed saying everything's going to be all right and just, and just let life happen. He's going to say at the right time, now move. Now, now do this. Now do that. You're still going to be doing stuff, but you're not doing it in your flesh anymore. You're not providing for you. He's providing for you. He'll use you, and he'll use other people. He'll use you to provide for other people. This is not a pathway to laziness, but it is a pathway to fruitfulness. You can bear no fruit of yourself. The flesh can bear no fruit. It's only walking in him, abiding in him that bears fruit. Now, if you noticed, when we started in verse 25... We committed a minor error in proper Bible reading because the first few words I read were, for this reason. Now, if you see a paragraph starting with, for this reason, what should you do? Go back and read. What reason? Right? So the reason that we start at verse 25 is because it starts a new paragraph and it's got a nice little chapter heading it's got a nice little title. Mine says the cure for anxiety. So if I'm struggling with anxiety, I start there. But Jesus is in mid-conversation. And he says, for this reason. Well, what reason? He's talked about not storing up treasures on earth, but storing them in heaven. He's talked about the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, uh, your whole body will be clear, full of light. If the eye is bad, it'll be full of darkness. What's he talking about? He's talking about everything goes back to, to your intention. Everything goes back to the matter of your heart. It, you can't just say, well, I'm doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. He says, you've got you to gotta have your eyes clear. You've got to have your vision clear. You've got to have your intentions clear. But then he gets to this, and he says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, maybe your Bible says God and wealth, but it specifically is a proper noun in the scripture. It's a capital M mammon. It's, it's a spirit. And you can't serve God and the God of wealth. You can't serve God and the God of materialism. You can't serve God and the, the Babylon system, the way the world works. Have you considered that what we're worried about is the, the thing we're worried about, the thing we think most about and are most concerned about, the things that is driving our anxiety, those are the things you'll serve. The thing you're worried about has become your master. Because your worry will direct you like an arrow. You can't just ignore worry. You, you tend, it, it, it's like a rudder on a ship. It'll turn you in a specific direction, especially when you start talking about it. So when I'm worried about something, I've chosen my master. Which is why it's so important that you remember who your father is. And you remember who the king is. Because worry and anxiety will turn you into a slave. You'll serve it. It'll own you. No one can serve two masters. So Jesus really challenged people when they said they wanted to follow him. And they would say things like, you know, can I, can I go bury my parents? Like, can I stick around until they're dead or whatever? You know, can I, all these things. And he said, nope, you got to follow me. If you want to follow me, follow me. In fact, in one place he says, you, you, you got to love me and you got to hate your parents, which is not something we put on the memory verses for kids downstairs. <laughs> what does he mean hate? Well, he doesn't mean that you're like, oh, I hate my parents, because he's the same Jesus who said, you guys aren't honoring your parents. When the Pharisees were using their money just to, just, and just giving it to the church but never taking care of their folks, he says, you're not honoring your father and mother. So Jesus is not teaching us to just be really mean to our parents or to not love them anymore. What's he saying? He's saying, you've got to love me more than you love them. And the one you love is the one you'll follow. You'll follow the things you love. You'll work for the things you love. You will serve the things you love. Right? True enough, you'll serve the things you love. So I love Jesus more than anything. I serve Jesus. Second in my life is my wife and my son. And you know what? I serve them. All the time. My love for them causes me to do things for them all the time. And vice versa. Because I love them. You may love things that you don't want to love. You may say, I, absolutely, I don't love them. But the, the way you know you love them is not whether you feel warm fuzzies in your heart about them. But really, the way you know if you love something is, do I, how much do I think about it? How much of my life is wrapped up in this thing? You may think you hate your job, but really you love your job. You don't love it in the way you want to love it. You want to love it in the way that this is fun. But I can tell you that you, even the job you hate, you actually love because that's what you care about. That's what you spend all your time on. That's what you're wrapped up in. You never think about anything else but your job. You may say, I despise this job, but, seek, but actually, you're showing it more love than you're showing the Lord. Does that make sense? We'll go out every day and say, I hate this stupid garden. <laughs> hate these plants. <laughs> But if every day you're out in that garden, you are showing that garden love. So no matter what fuzzies you feel, you love it because you're spending time with it. You're spending time thinking about it. You're spending time working in it. If I love the Lord more than I love anything else, he's going to have most of my attention. I'm going to be seeking his kingdom and his righteousness more than these other things. So he's tying these thoughts together. For this reason, I say don't worry. Worry Put, making yourself a servant of the thing you're worrying about. You can't serve God and serve other things. So your worry is keeping you from serving God because you can't serve two masters. And I want you to tell you, it's, it's time, just you have permission to let it go and not feel guilty. But not just let it go into the ether, not just let it go in a Disney way. Give it to the Lord. Give it to the one that cares. Know that you have a father. With that, I'm going to read you one more verse. You've heard the scripture, and you've probably heard it a few different ways. How many of you have ever heard that money is the root of all evil? Right? But that's not what the Bible says. It says the love of money 
And it doesn't say the love of money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is a root of all, and if you look in the Greek, all sorts of evil. It's a big root, but it's not the only root. And it's not money itself. It's the love of it. Right? How do you know you love money? It's not that you're like Scrooge McDuck and you got like all the coins in your basement and you're diving into them and breaking your nose on them. It's, it's not that you're like flinging dollar bills, which, I mean, I guess they'd have to be U.S. dollar bills, but <laughs> it's not the same effect flinging loonies. <laughs> Making it rain is painful when it's loonies, right? It's not, that, that is like the cartoon version of loving money. People love money in ways that, it's not, that are not cartoon friendly. We love money, like I said, when you think you have to take the extra hours so you can buy the boat. You love money when, when you think that, you know, well, I, I mean, uh, if I just had this, if I just had this, then I'd be satisfied. No, you wouldn't be. And really, we're about to find out in the verse I'm, we're going to close with that the love of money is really rooted in the fear of not having it or the fear of losing it. That's where the, the, so love doesn't mean you feel like, oh, money, 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 I love it, I love it. No, the love of money is, it's grasping, it's, I have to, like, it's holding on to it, like, I can't let it go. Because what if I don't have it tomorrow? Listen, here's the problem with Closing your hand over the thing God provides to you. When you close your hand and you make a fist out of it, and you say, nope, that's mine, I'm not letting it go. You've just closed your hand. Yeah, you won't let your money go, it'll, it'll rot in your hand. But your hand's no longer open to receive either. When your hand's not open to give, your hand's not open to receive. You've just shut yourself off from the blessing of God. Living life with an open hand that says, God, whatever you give, I'll receive, and whatever you tell me to give, I'll give. Nothing I own is non-givable. No thing I own is non-givable. Now, I said something like that a couple years ago, and somebody said, so you're talking about my life. I said, I said, if you can't give something away, then you should just give it away. Do you know what I mean? If you can't imagine giving something away, you should give it away now, because it, it has a grip on you. And somebody came to me and was like, you think I should give my wife and my kids away? I said, no, something, something. <laughs> If you think of your kids and your wife as objects, we have another issue, and we'll book you some time. <laughs> I want you to turn to Hebrews 13. The end of Hebrews is so wonderful. Hebrews has been dealing with fear and anxiety and worry throughout the whole book. Fear of losing your family, fear of losing your culture, uh, fear, fear of not pleasing God, fear of not being able to come to God. And it's also been dealing with faith. Earlier in Hebrews, it tells us, Be, take care, brethren, that not one of you falls away because of an unbelieving, evil, unbelieving heart. So not really believing in God, not really putting my trust in him, not putting my faith in him, I might think that that's an innocent mistake, but in, in, in point of fact, if I hold on to it, it's an evil thing, and it'll cause you to fall away from God. I don't want to fall away from God. I want to come closer to him. And Hebrews over and over says, now we can come to him because of Jesus. We can come close. We can come with confidence. By the time we get in Hebrews 13, he's giving some real instructions, some end-of-the-letter instructions, which is super important stuff. And he says this in verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? How do I make sure that my character is free from the love of money? Do I give it all away? Well, if God told you to, yeah. That's what he told the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler's problem was love of money. And he told him, hey, give it all away. He was setting him free from the chains. And don't think he was going to make the rich young ruler a poor little homeless dude, because even if he was following Jesus, what would have been the problem? But he said to the rich young ruler, he, he, he told him, give all your money away, give it to the poor, and follow me. 
Why? Because this guy's a rich, young ruler. Rich, young ruler doesn't just mean you have money in your ATM account. Rich, young ruler means you're in charge of a bunch of stuff. You are, you're in charge of land. You're in charge of people. And you can't be in charge of that and still follow Jesus at the same time. That's the practical side of it. The spiritual side of it is that these things owned him more than he owned them. So Jesus is about to set him free. He said, hey, you know what? Just let that go. Give it all away and follow me. How do we know that Jesus wasn't just, you know, going to treat this guy like a scumbag? He said right after, he said, anybody that gives up all this stuff for me, their houses and their land and their families, he says, I'll give them a hundred times more in, the age, in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus is saying, hey, I would take care of you. But this guy couldn't trust Jesus with that, right? He was going to set him free from the love of money, but the love of money is really Fear of losing it or fear of not having it. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. So here he is about to tell us what the root of the love of money is. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's how we know that the love of money is rooted in fear. It's fear of being abandoned. It's once again that orphan heart. It's an orphan heart that says, no one's going to take care of me if I don't do it myself. If I don't do this, nobody's going to do it. What's his answer? His answer isn't, you know, he says, let your character be free from the love of money, knowing this, that you don't really need anything. No, he, he says this. This is, this is what you've got to remember. I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. I want you to think for a minute about that phrase that he said, being content with what you have. On one hand, you might think, well, I have a house, I have a family, I have a car, so I should be content with that. Yeah, that, that's one way of looking at it. Let me even show you another way. Being content with what you have. What does he now tell you that you do have? Because he, he be, he's writing to people that he said had the property seized. Maybe they don't have a house. He's writing to people that have been persecuted. Maybe they don't have a family anymore because the family kicked them out. What does he just tell you right now that you have? You have him. And if you have him, you have everything you need. He's the provider. He's the caretaker. He's the caretaker. Caretaker. Let him take your care. I will never desert you. I will never desert you. I will never desert you. Nor will I ever forsake you. To desert you means he'd leave you. Forsake you means he won't take care of you. He won't, he won't worry about your welfare. He says in verse 6, so that we confidently say, this is what you really need to say. If you've got a problem with money, this is what you need to start saying. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? See, without thinking like God thinks, you don't put that verse in the same room as the love of money, right? We think if somebody's got a greed issue, we should put them in a room and say, I shouldn't be greedy, it's bad to be greedy, I hate to be greedy, I shouldn't be care about it. Shouldn't. And that's not really not going to fix anything. If you struggle, and, and now listen, we think the only people with the love of money are rich people. But I've, read, I've met poor people that have a huge love of money. Just because you don't have it doesn't mean you're, always reaching, you're not always reaching for it. It doesn't matter how much you have or don't have. It's about your heart. And here he says, this is what you need to say. Confidently. Confidently. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What could man do to me? He's writing to a group of people that know, remember, their property is being seized, their families are kicking them out, the synagogues are scratching them off the synagogue list, the empire is turning against them. What happens if you confess Jesus publicly? You could lose everything. And they're here saying, what could man do to me? The Lord's my helper. He's my helper. He's the one that takes care of me. He's the one that pays the bills for me. He's the one that, uh, he does all of this. He's not going to leave me distraught. He's not going to leave me as an orphan. He's with me. He'll never desert me. He'll never forsake me. See, if we really believed that, you know how fearless we would be? You would charge into life like a maniac because the Lord's with you. I've, we've talked about this. You know, uh, one of the youth mentioned it already. How, how would your life be different if Jesus physically was walking next to you saying, hey, let's just go do this? 
You would do anything. He told you to go to the mall and sing happy day at the top of your lungs, clap your hands, and do a dance. If Jesus were there, you would do it. If he said, go to the lake, catch a fish, there's going to be a coin in its mouth. You say, if you say so, boss. Should it be any different because we can't see him? No, faith is, is, is what we can't see. So we know he's here. So what am I afraid of? What could man do to me? If your anxiety is tied to your fear of, what if I can't take care of my family? So many of us would be okay living in a shack, in a tent. We'd be okay scrounging for food if it was just us, but... I can't, I can't think that way now. I've I got kids. I've got a family. I've got people that depend on me. How could I think that way? You have to think that way. You have to believe that your father will take care of you. You have to believe that he wants better for you than you want for yourself. You have to believe that he owns everything in the world, so he's got more than enough for everybody. You have to believe that if I'm willing to let something go, my hands are now open to receive. You have to believe it. And he says in the next verse, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. No leader is trying to make you a clone of them. Because you can have a leader that's got different giftings and a different call on their life than you have. So you don't have to copy everything they, they say, copy their emotions, and you don't have to be a clone of them. But you know what you should copy? Imitate their faith. And he doesn't say imitate the faith of the best preachers you know. He says imitate the ones that led you and you saw the result of their faith. Sometimes that's somebody on a stage. Sometimes it's somebody who never had a microphone. But they were an example of God's faithfulness. Imitate their faith. And then he says this, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you can believe that, you can get through anything. If you can believe that, no worry will own you. Scripture says he set us free from the fear of death, and by the fear of death, people have been subject to slavery all their lives. Fear makes you a slave. Worry makes you a servant. You can't serve two masters. And I want you to know there's freedom for you. I also want you to know that just because your faith is under attack doesn't mean you're faithless. It doesn't mean you're in rebellion. It means it's under attack. And when something's under attack, you fight back. And when you fight back, sometimes you can fight back and you, you, it's a quick battle. Sometimes you've got to grab the hand of somebody next to you and say, you, I need you to pray with me. I'm fighting. I want us to stand up today.